Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Our scripture today is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. The word of God speaks to us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God to us. Marcia, thank you for that reading this morning. Church, good morning. We doing okay? All right, it's good to be with you guys today. What a full morning already. Um, getting to celebrate our sister, Sujith, back in town. Uh, full house this morning. It's really, really good to see you guys today. Starting Advent. Uh, singing all the, I mean, it's, my heart is full and ready to go this morning. We get to open God's word together. Uh, if you've got a Bible open to Isaiah chapter 9, the passage that was just read, we're going to be there today as we jump into Advent, and I'll explain so much of what Advent is. If that's new to you, if that's a new term to you, if you're confused about what we're doing, I'll get to that here in just a bit. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors, and, um, and I'm really, really excited again about, about this morning. So uh, I really want to just kind of get to it. We've got a lot to cover this morning. So if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and then we'll jump in. Sound good? All right. Our God, you're so good to us. <laughs> and I realize I say that in this room. I pray that is my opening words here, God, but even for those who maybe this morning don't feel the goodness of God today. You are good and you do good. And I pray today where there's a lack of the experience of your goodness, where there's a dwindling faith that you are good, God, I pray that you would meet us afresh today. That there would be God, I'm asking, we, we prayed early this morning for understanding. God, I'm asking for understanding here today. Understanding that would lead some in this room to faith in Jesus for the first time. Understanding that would bolster the faith of, in Jesus for those who have been followers of him for a long time. 
I'm asking God for today an encounter with your transcendence and your eminence, your beyondness and your nearness, God. Would we leave here today saying, surely, surely I have encountered the living God. Thank you that you know how to handle us. Thank you that you know what to do with us. Thank you that you know how to speak to us. And we trust that this passage before us, your living word is able to accomplish all of those things. And so I offer this prayer in the strong name of Jesus, and we all said, amen. The words busy and tired and stretched are words I've been hearing a lot lately. Busy, tired, stretched. The words I've heard multiple times in multiple different conversations with Various kinds of people who would be saying that from all different vantage points. Words that, if I'm honest with you even today, describe me. Busy, tired, stretched. And you put all of that on top of a time of the year, welcome to it, that feels like it ought to be some, some sort of a slowdown, doesn't it? The end of the year feels like, hey, things should be kind of slowing down, or that's what maybe something internally ought to tell us. Yet for many of us, the reality is we feel these ways, and yet this season tends to be more demanding, even if it's by our own choosing. We just choose to be more busy and say yes to every party. And isn't it true, right? The turn of November to December doesn't just mark a special season in the life of the church. We're squarely in the throes of what culture calls Christmas. We're here. And for some of you, the holiday season has snuck up on you. I feel like I'm old enough now. I turned 40 this year. I'm a man. I'm 40, right? Uh, I turned 40 this year, and I feel like I'm now old enough to appreciate the phrase that I joked about for so long. It's already here. Where is the time gone? You know, like it goes by so fast. For others of you, though, you come to the holiday season and you love it. This season fires you up. Maybe you're feeling things, but those feelings go away because you've been in the Christmas spirit since October 1st. You were in t-shirt and shorts with a pumpkin spice latte saying, when's everyone else going to get to the party? You've already been here. There's others of you, though, that the holidays are a bit harder. And each, of, each year you wonder how you're going to paint on the smile that you feel like you're supposed to have. The smile that you believe others want you to have. The smile um, that deep down maybe you want to have but the wear and tear of life has just made it hard. It's just made it hard and sort of this is sort of, for some of you, I I know the stories in the room, this is sort of an anniversary of difficult seasons. Wherever you are today, however you're entering into the holiday season, I know that in this room, a room this size, even still, there's something common for all of us. However you're in it, there's something common for all of us. The Christmas season tends to bring with it, doesn't it, this desire for breakthrough. You come to the end of the year and there's this desire, there's this sort of churning inside of you. Maybe sometimes you feel it loudly, sometimes it's a low-grade buzz in the background, but there's this desire for something to change. Maybe it's a change in you that you want or a change in your circumstances. It's just the thought that maybe this time will be different. Maybe this time will be different. Some of you are more hopeful with that desire than others. Others of you are quite cynical. Nothing ever seems to change, you might say. All the same, at the end of the calendar year, we're hopeful for something good to come our way. Think about it. After all the labors over the course of a calendar year, 
Some of you show up now and you're hoping this holiday season for family breakthrough. You've just gone maybe through a Thanksgiving that wasn't what you wanted it to be. You're thinking about in weeks to come, a Christmas that's not what you hope it to be or maybe it doesn't exist at all with a family. So you're hoping for relationships to be mended or deepened. Some of you come to the end of a calendar year and you want financial breakthrough. You want something to change in your bank account, the job. You come to the end of a calendar year and some of you are just hoping for something to turn with your health and for something to turn with a report from the doctor. You come to the end of the year and maybe again, I just want to name it because I think it's true, you want something inside of you to change. Maybe something you've never even told to someone else, but you want something to break free in you, in you. We don't always know what to do with these desires, but here's what I want you to sort of be invited into this morning. That desire for breakthrough, that, that thing, that, the desire for change, those places in your life where you would just say, hey, things aren't the way they're supposed to be or things aren't the way that I want them to be outside of you or inside of you, that thing, that is the invitation to the Christian observance of Advent. That's the invitation. Advent, as one author puts it, Advent is an invitation into the dark, and it's a longing for light. That's what Advent is. And so Advent comes from the Latin word adventus. It means arrival or coming, particularly the arrival of God, the birth of Jesus. And so historically, this season in the life of the church has been about entering into the waiting, entering into the longing, the burden present throughout the Old Testament for the promised Messiah to show up. And so the reason that there is a longing in this season, the reason that this season almost inherently comes with it, with this desire for breakthrough, is because that's what this whole thing is about. This whole thing is about God breaking through. And so in all of those places of unmet desire, and we have them, in all of those places of a burden for change, this season is both an invitation and it's a reminder to us, listen, only God will do. Only God will do. The thing that you and I need most deeply is to be affected afresh by the presence of the living God. The thing that we need most deeply isn't a quick fix or a quick numbing mechanism. What we need is to be lifted again by his promises, listen, that he will show up for you. He will show up for you. And only he will do. And so here's what we're gonna do over the next few weeks the intro to the intro of this season. We're gonna to turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. That's how we're gonna track for the next three weeks. And what's happening in Isaiah is he gives us some of the most powerful and some of the clearest prophecies about what God promised the Messiah would be like. That when God's Messiah would show up, what should we expect? What should we be looking for? And the amazing thing about the prophet Isaiah is that he ministered to the people of God 700 years, 8th century BC, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he's reminding the people of God, don't lose hope. God has promised. He keeps his promises. He doesn't lie. He will show up for you. His words were God's words to the people then that were meant to shape their longing and their waiting to keep them tuned in. But his words are also God's words to us today, meant to shape our longing, 
They're meant to shape your waiting. They looked to the arrival of the Messiah. We look to the return of the Messiah. Amen? And so today we're going to start with one of the more well-known prophecies of this book. You, it was just read. It was rehearsed in our liturgy this morning. You've probably heard the words before of Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've heard this one before, but what I want us to do this morning is work through the setting of this passage because the setting makes these already powerful words all the more so. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Advent is about deep darkness. Advent is about deep darkness. Look at with me, look with me at verse one. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later time, he made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So much of the ministry of the prophet Isaiah took place during a time in Israel of national and political and military turmoil. And so before you can understand anything about the promised light to come, you've got to understand the darkness that all of this was set against. At this point for the Jewish people, they were hardly a holy people when Isaiah speaks these words. They certainly weren't a reflection of the heart of God to the nations that he called them to be. The darkness that was happening all around them was in large part of their own choosing to live out the darkness inside of them. The darkness inside caused all kinds of darkness outside. At this moment, sort of politically and nationally, they were afraid of being conquered by the Assyrians. That was a neighboring nation that was one of the cruelest and most powerful of their time. A string of godless kings had led the nation away from the worship of God. Their current king, King Ahaz, in an effort not to lose his throne and keep his political power from being taken over by the Assyrians in war, he agreed to let them have sort of policing authority over the northern parts of Israel, of Zebulun and Naphtali, the, the lands that the scripture speaks of. But as a result of giving them access to those northern lands, what was happening is that they turned on Israel and they were starting to deport Jews from those lands back to Assyria to be enslaved. And eventually the Assyrians would take over the whole thing. And so this is, a, again, a, a time of great unrest, political unrest. The institutions couldn't be trusted. And so in an effort to sort of comfort themselves and stabilize themselves. They refused to look to God for help. It seemed like he wasn't helping at all. So they started reaching out for anything they could that would offer them guidance and security. They even resorted to dark spirituality. In chapter eight, it's gonna tell us in just a second, I'll read it, they started attending seances and consulting witch doctors for political help. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 19, Isaiah the prophet's warning the people. He says, when they say to you, because there's gonna be some who say to you, things are so bad, we should do some crazy stuff. But when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, these are the witch doctors, he says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? People are gonna say, we should be doing all sorts of things. God isn't helping, but he says, don't listen to them. He's trying to warn them. This is certainly not a shining moment for Israel. And if you've ever read the opening chapter of the book of Isaiah, the book opens with this potent rebuke to the condition of the people. In essence, God says, 
I've raised children who have rebelled against me. Animals like ox and donkey, they know their masters, but my children have no clue who I am. God tells them to stop their religious feasts and sacrifices and prayers. He says, your hypocrisy is a burden to me. He says, stop hiding your sins in shame. Come to me and confess and I will cleanse you. He pleads with them, stop playing religious games. They were tired, they were busy, they were stretched. And they started playing religious games. At the time of Isaiah's prophecy, things were truly dark all around them and inside of them, and again, by their own choosing. And I always want to point at this when we read the dark stuff in Scripture. It's easy to hold other people at a distance and look at them and say, well, that's crazy. But we're the same kind of crazy. Their darkness exposes our darkness because isn't it true, just like them, you and I are the kind of people who play religious games. We play religious games. We, we look to nearly everything else the world has to offer to really satisfy us. We look to everything else the world has to offer. I'll take some God, but when I really need stuff, I'll go to the world. I look to the world to make me feel safe and worth something. Many of us don't truly care about the nearness of God. If I get the nearness of God, that's sort of icing on the cake. What we really want is just a good life built out according to our preferences. But we also want to keep God close enough so that we don't have to feel bad when we ask him for blessing. I just want what I want. Religious games in Oklahoma may not look like mixing God with witchcraft like they were doing. But religious games in Oklahoma look a lot like treating God like a lucky rabbit's foot, where we just use him to get what we want. Sort of the approach of the country singer Jelly Roll. Never follow a guy named Jelly Roll. <laughs> I only talk to God when I need a favor, right? That's a prophetic line that speaks to our problem. But even then you say, I only talk to God when I need a favor, but if he doesn't come through, I'll just look to whatever else it takes to get what I want. And so Isaiah goes on to tell us of the dark, the dark result of that kind of dark religion. Look at Isaiah 8, 21 and 22. He says, so when they pass through the land, they're gonna be greatly distressed and hungry. They're gonna be desperate. And when they're hungry, he says, they will be enraged and they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God as though that's the problem. They'll turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness, the prophet says. And so the problem with fickle religion is that it only leads to more darkness. It only leads to more darkness. When things go wrong in your life, it's easy to blame God. I prayed and nothing happened, it must be his fault. Never mind taking accountability for your own drift. You speak contemptuously against your God. And, he say, and then it goes on to say in 22, the foolishness of that kind of religion is that you end up looking to the earth as though I really need to be satisfied as something in addition to God, money, sex, experiences, advancement. And so we go after those things, and even though it may not feel dark in the moment, it might feel like there's actually release in the moment, over time it's gonna say you're only gonna be thrust into even deeper darkness, and many of our testimonies bear weight to that. And in the end, what happens, you throw God on the shelf, you pursue the world, 
And what you end up happening is you're lost in both God and the world, safe with neither. And the result of their darkness and our darkness aren't too different. And so the question then becomes, with all this darkness, what is God going to do? Because things are dark because of their own choosing and our own choosing. And it's actually a scary question. What's God going to do with all this darkness? Because if we're honest with ourselves, which is difficult to do, what's God going to do with the darkness? That's a scary question because it's the reason we often fear judgment deep down. The reason that you often fear judgment is because we know left to ourselves, we don't have anything to say for ourselves before the living God. We know we've played the fool. We know we've betrayed him. We know we've rejected him. We have nothing to say for ourselves and that's where the fear of, that's why people would often just assume not to believe in God and shove that down altogether. The problem is it haunts you on your pillow at night. So what's God gonna do? Advent is about deep darkness, but take a turn with me. Advent is about great light. Notice again the first four words of verse one of chapter nine, but there will be. You almost expect it to say there will be and a judgment to come because of the darkness. But the word but is a really big but here, guys. But there will be, as if to say a contrast. It's not going to be judgment. There's going to be something else. He goes on to say, there will be no gloom for who who is in anguish, even if it was anguish brought on yourself. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's going on here? This is absolutely a word of grace. It's absolutely a word from the prophet of undeserved kindness. But it's not as, good, it's not as though God has just turned a blind eye to their rebellion or ours. The result of their rebellion is they suffered the loss of their homeland. The Assyrians really did take over. Back up in chapter eight, verse 17, Isaiah tells the people, you're experiencing this. I'm just telling you what you're currently experiencing. God is hiding his face from you. What you think is happening is actually happening. God is hiding his face from you, but he says, but don't despair. Don't despair. Trust in him even though it's dark. Even though you've brought on the dark, trust in God. Turn back to him. Hope in him. Wait for him. Why is the prophet saying this? Because God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. I know it's dark. And it feels like God is gone. But the prophet is saying, turn from the dark. Hope in God. Why? Because he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. He's promised. And what has God promised? God has promised that for his people, sin and darkness will not get the last word. A Messiah has been promised. He will bring a deliverance from sin. And the, and the head of that ancient serpent will one day be crushed. God has promised this. And God has also promised to make good on his promise to David that he will be a king for his people. And that through the line of David, there's going to be something that's bigger than Israel. This is going to be for the nations. He will be a king. And so notice again the language of the passage. In the former time, he brought contempt. Into, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Why do you keep reading those, preacher? I don't know what that means. Remember what we said earlier. 
Those two places were the places that they gave themselves to the Assyrians. They caved to the enemy and they gave themselves to darkness. But here's what Isaiah is saying. It might be dark right now, but God's gonna do something in the very place of your shame. The very place where you gave yourself over to the enemy, the very place where in sin and error you were pining, the very place where you've given yourself to failure, the very place where you've given yourself to exile, and the very place where you're tempted now to believe that God has given up on you, the very place that you're tempted to believe that he's ejected on his promises, that's going to be the very place that he shows up for you and works redemption. That's the place. And the place of your shame will be the place of God's very presence and deliverance. You say, how can we be sure that the prophet wasn't just speaking motivational nothings? Matthew chapter four, fast forward 700 years. Matthew chapter four, verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, He went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. You hear key words there being repeated? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, to a people dwelling in darkness, they have seen a great light. Behold the light of the world. And for those dwelling in a region and of shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For what? The kingdom of God is here. 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus emerges from his wilderness temptation to begin his public ministry to declare the invasion of the kingdom of God. In the very place where Isaiah's fellow Jews were being deported because of the darkness of the people and of the foolishness of their king, Jesus shows up and says, what? God's kingdom is right here in the place of your shame. This is why the prophet Isaiah goes on to say in verse two, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Well, I guess so. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. What Isaiah is saying is that God will show up for you. So much of your problem is a problem you brought on yourself, but God will show up for you. God is going to work a deliverance for you, and he says it has nothing to do with you. That's why it's such good news. Notice the subject of all these sentences. It's God. The deliverance that God brings is entirely his doing. He's the one who multiplies the nations. He's the one who shines the light. He's the one who brings the joy. He doesn't need your help. He's going to fight for you. He fights. He wins. And those who look to him get to stand in his victory. And in verses 4 and 5, Isaiah goes on to say that this saving work is going to bring with it joy. He says it's going to be joy like harvest season, and that may not mean much to you living in the heart of a city, but for an agrarian people, it meant joy like a massive payday. That the deliverance God's going to bring is going to be reason to celebrate because we've been provided for when it looked like everything was lost. When God brings deliverance, there's reason to party. He also says there's going to be peace. Peace. 
Peace like at the end of a wartime, knowing that your enemy has been decisively defeated. Verse 4, he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. These are references. These are references to Israel's history. This is saying, I never forgot you in Egypt. God is saying to his people, I never forgot you in Egypt. Remember the burden of your slavery? Remember the rod of your oppressor that beat on your back? I didn't forget you in Egypt. And just like I never forgot you in Egypt, I also never forgot you on the day when Gideon led that tiny army against the Midianites. If I didn't forget you then, I'm not gonna forget you now against the Assyrians. I've never forgotten you. You might feel forgotten, but I've never forgotten you. And so two quick applications here before we move to our final today. In verses two to four, I want you to catch this with me because this blew my mind about this passage. In verses two to four, Isaiah speaks this prophetic word about God's future deliverance, but he speaks about it in past tense language. Hold this for a second. He says, for those who what? Walked, past tense, like used to. For those who walked in darkness, they have seen, as though they've seen it before, a great light. He says, for you, God, have multiplied, as though that's, that multiplication's already happened. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy, as though it already has joy. And he goes on to say, you have broken, as though it's already been broken, the rod of the oppressor. Now catch this. This is a future prophecy. They haven't seen light. They're in darkness. Their joy is not joy. It's sadness. He's telling them they have joy and that the rod of their oppressor is broken and the Assyrians are beating down on them. So catch this. Isaiah is speaking about God's future purposes for his people, but he's doing so in past tense terms in order to say that God's purposes are so sure and they're so secure that we can go ahead and talk about them as though they're already done. That's crazy. He's saying that nothing's going to get in the way of God's saving purposes for his people. So this is like going into battle when you know the war is already won. This is like watching a recording of your favorite sports team. No matter how much you were down at halftime, you know you've already won the game. Not true for my Cowboys yesterday. <laughs> but this is like watching the recording. No matter how bad it looks, we're going to win the game. That's what he's saying. Isaiah's point for his original hearers and for us is this, God can be trusted no matter how dark. I want some of you to hear that so desperately today. God can be trusted no matter how dark. And the second thing is this, the second piece of application, the place of shame became the place of God's presence. The place of shame became the place of God's presence. I so deeply want everyone in the room to hear this today. You can't possibly fail so bad as to move yourself beyond the grace of Jesus. You can't possibly fail so bad so as to remove yourself beyond the presence of the grace of Jesus. This is the whole message of the Bible. 
In case you think the Bible is about an angry God with a massive fist, Romans 5 tells us where sin abounds, where sin abounds, look to Jesus because grace abounds all the more. <laughs> Amazing. In the place of darkness, Advent is about great light. In the place of shame, Advent is the invitation to the arrival of God's presence. And so here's our final turn today. The question is, well, then how does God do this? We know what God does. In darkness, he brings light. How does God do this? How does he work this deliverance? Pick up with me in 9 verse 6. The third turn today is Advent is about a son that is given. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government's gonna be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The deliverance that God brings is not a political strategy. The deliverance that God brings isn't military force. The deliverance that God brings isn't economic power plays. That's not the deliverance that God brings, but those are the resources that we reach out to oftentimes. The deliverance that God brings comes through the birth of a child. This is the wonder and the mystery of the Christian faith. And it's not like it's a let's wait and see sort of thing. Like, well, what is this child going to grow up to be? What's this child going to grow up to do? It's not like that. No, it's everything about this child, even lying there in the manger, from his conception to his birth to his final breath, everything about him is bound up in the deliverance that God is bringing, everything in him. At the birth of Jesus, the angels sang but also at the birth of Jesus, the demons shrieked. At the birth of Jesus, because they knew their time was short. Satan didn't have to wait until Jesus to grow up to know he was defeated. Satan knew he was done the day he was born. When he heard those Bethlehem cries from the stable, I'm done, it's over for me. He knew that the day he was born, his skull was going to be crushed. The people waited for this Messiah, longing for the day that God would break through. Satan waited for this Messiah in agony, knowing that this breakthrough meant his crushing. And this was, about, this was about a deliverance that God's bringing through this child is about a deliverance far greater than, than an enemy like Assyria. This is a deliverance and this is a defeat of the enemies that really stand opposed to us before the face of the living God. We're talking about the enemies of Satan and sin and death. He can do something about them. And unless we think that Isaiah is just talking about the birth of just another child, the names of this child tell a bigger story. This is the one who will be both God and man. It says he is the wonderful counselor. We need one of those. Literally translated, it is a wonder of a counselor or a wonder ruler, meaning this is going to be a miraculous, supernaturally gifted leader. If that's not enough, it says he's going to be mighty God. He's the one and the only one who can really do something about sin, your darkness. He's the everlasting father, meaning there is safety and there is permanence to the reign of this child, everlasting. 
and he is the perfect reflection of the heart of God the Father. And he is the Prince of Peace. Listen, guys, Jesus doesn't just have peace. He is peace. To be attached to Jesus is to be attached to peace, even when you don't feel peace. You say, I'm attached to Jesus, but I feel like a mosh pit on the inside. When you're attached to Jesus, you're attached to peace, even when you don't feel it, because it means that when you look to him, God's purposes over you will not fail, even when it's dark. He will show up for you. He will show up for you. And Isaiah goes on to say that everything about the kingdom of God is gonna rest on his shoulders. Everything is gonna come down to this child. Everything, literally everything. How much is he serious about this? Everything hinges on Jesus. He will never be defeated and there will be no end to the increase of his reign. Isaiah so deeply wants us to know that what God is offering through this child is a grace that is stronger than all the ways that you tend to fall away. It's a grace that is stronger from all the ways that you still fail, and me too. And so to prove this, here's the one final thing, and here's my jazz hands, and I'm done today. To prove this, notice the final words of verse seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will do this. There is a zeal to our God. There's a kind of jealousy to our God. There's a kind of red-faced passion to make good on all of his promises. This prophecy, listen, this prophecy was never up for negotiation. He will do this. So Christian, this means for you that God won't stop. He will stop at nothing until your rebel heart until your rebel heart is fully conquered and submitted to him. God will stop at nothing until your rebel heart is conquered and fully submitted to him. God is not the kind that lets go. He's the kind that sticks it out and stays around. He will do this. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, thank you for running with me today. It's a privilege to have you here. If you're not yet sure about what you believe about Jesus, I want you to know that this means that God can really be trusted. Everything we've talked about today means that God can really be trusted. His word has never failed, and it's not about to start now. He is who he says he is, and this prophecy that we're reading today was given 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and it's just one more evidence that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. And so three, three questions that I'll give you and we'll pray. It'll be on the screen. Where in your life are you struggling to trust God? Where in your life are you struggling to trust God? Advent, Advent is an invitation to trust again. He shows up. He shows up. The second question is this. Where in your life do you feel abandoned or forgotten by God? Where do you feel like he's just sort of flown over you? Advent is an invitation to rest in his promises, 
He didn't forget his people in Egypt. He didn't forget them in Midian. He didn't forget them against Assyria. He fulfills all his promises and he's not forgotten you. We'd love to pray with you today if that's how you feel. And here's the last one. Where in your life do you fear that you've failed beyond the reach of God's mercy? Where do you feel like, hey, if I can just get half forgiveness from God, like that's better than none? Advent is proof that his love endures forever. You don't have to settle for half forgiveness or just staying out of God's way. You can trust him for full forgiveness for to us a son has been given. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please revive us again. Thank you that you're not scared of the dark. God, thank you that you're not anxious in the dark. Thank you that you're not put out by our own darkness. Thank you that the light of your son Jesus will shine and will not be overcome. Father, thank you that you keep your promises and you don't lie. And thank you that you show up for your people. I pray that for every person here today, we would leave confident that if I look to Jesus, God will show up for me. Jesus, thank you that that's true. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.